This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Tonight we're going to continue our series on Reformed Theology, looking at the life of a man who probably, uh, as as much as any other man, affected um, the use of covenant theology, basing the, his system of theology uh, on the various covenants. Again, why are we in a series like this? Uh, it's because, as Paul told Timothy, we are the pillar and ground of the truth. And so we need to know the truth so that we can identify what is not true Uh, identify that which may even sound true but may not be healthy for the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, so as we begin tonight, let me just give you the apology or the purpose of why I want to take some time to look at this man's life. I don't know that we're going to finish tonight. Again, I hope you'll take some notes Because of the popularity of covenant theology and the dangers that we've already examined, it's necessary that Christians know the background and the teachings of those who laid the foundation for this Reformed system. You can hear names like Calvin and Augustine, but you need to know who these men were, their backgrounds, uh, you need to know their backgrounds, their testimonies, just just to be fair to them, okay? But you need to know then how it affected what they taught, what they believed. History is a helpful tool for understanding how God has preserved his truth and his church in cooperation with the thinking of men or in spite of it. It is amazing to me how God has continued to build his church. The gates of hell have not been able to prevail, though there has been a lot of wrong thinking. And then finally, Scripture exhorts us to consider the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us in order that we might keep our eyes on Jesus and lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily besets us, Hebrews chapter 12. And so let's look at the background. Let's consider the background of this man, John Calvin. My goal is not to hurt the reputation of a man who risked his own life in defense of Bible truth. By that, I'm not suggesting that everything he taught was, in fact, Bible truth. But he risked his life for the sake of truth. And I think we we need to respect that. The day in which John Calvin lived, who he studied, his own statements and actions must guide our thinking about his life. So I want to be fair, I want to be objective, but help you see the whole picture. And then I think as we unfold this, you're going to understand why it's important that you know about this man. John Calvin was born July 10th, 1509 in Noyon, France. He was born into a devout Roman Catholic family. 
As a youth, he demonstrated a love for Latin and academic study. He was a brilliant boy, and then that matured into a brilliant man. He served the Roman church as a clerk. However, when his father and his brother, his brother was a priest, were excommunicated from the church, John's father directed him away from the priesthood and into the study of law. By the way, it's documented his dad also thought he'd probably make more money as a lawyer than a priest. In 1531, Calvin earned a Bachelor of Laws degree. Do I think John Calvin is in heaven? Well, when you read his conversion, I believe he is. He was converted after a friend, read him the scriptures, and as they were reading together the writings of Martin Luther. Do I believe Luther's in heaven? Absolutely. Calvin became so vocal in his Protestant beliefs that he was forced to leave Paris during a crackdown there on dissidents. If you study his life, he also read, studied, and knew some of the Huguenots. If you want to know why France is in the spiritually darkened state it is today, because at one point the the Roman church in France destroyed every Huguenot they could find or the Huguenots uh, fled the country. It set France back because their skilled labor force, where they were the Huguenots. These are believers. You're, you and I are going to get to know these people in heaven. Calvin was influenced by them as well. And so he found safe hiding in Agalim, and it was there two to three years after his conversion, uh, at the age of 26, that he wrote his now famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. How many of you have read any of that? Have any of you seen that or read that? All right, some of you have. Tavis Long, of course. Brother Tavis, did you know he was 26 years old when he finished that? Wow. Okay. All right. Now, what did he believe? Well, those who call themselves Calvinists vary in what they believe. It's doubtful that Calvin himself would totally agree with everything the people say he believed. At the same time, this reformer could not have known the far-reaching impact of his writings and how that would impact the church. <coughs> Excuse me. Someone has said this, quote, and I'm quoting uh, Georgia um, Harkness, who said, no man in the history of the church has been more admired and ridiculed, loved and hated, blessed and cursed. I think that that would be pretty true. All right. So many of the evangelical or many in evangelical churches today, including those who hold Calvin in high regard, know little about the strong Roman Catholic influence on his life. Now, I took considerable time in here to help us understand 
why it's so important that we interpret the scripture historically, grammatically, and literally. Calvin was influenced negatively by those who had a different way of interpreting the Bible. Yet it must also be remembered that Rome is all this man knew. It's all the other reformers had ever known. And so Calvin in his institutes said the following about Catholicism. Let's talk about his beliefs. Here's what he said. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Whence flow perpetual remission of sins and full restoration to eternal life. You're aware, I'm sure, that a good Catholic thinks I get to heaven because I'm part of this church. And I, I might even believe your gospel, but I dare not leave this church because, there you go. The forgiveness for my sins is hinged to whether or not I'm part of this church. I don't think the average Christian, genuine believer, really understands how deep that goes or how far back this goes. Now, what does the Scripture say regarding remission of sins? And I pick these two passages because, again, I want you to see the balance. I'm going to make a reference and then... We're going to see this, I think, more plainly in a short while. Matthew 26, 28. What does the scripture say about forgiveness of sins? For this is my blood of, my, of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26. All right. When did Jesus say that? At the Last Supper, the Lord's table. Okay, exactly. That's when he said it. Now there are, each of the Gospels shares what happened at that Last Supper. This is Matthew's account. Notice what it says. The blood of my, of, of the New Testament, all right, my promise, my new promise, which is shed for all, shed for many. Now, there are those who want to emphasize election predestination. Remember, those are biblical doctrines, right? There are no dirty doctrines. Somebody say amen. Okay. So, shed for many. What's that re referencing? Well, you and I know it was shed for all. But will all accept the new promise? No. Many will. All right, so here you go. But consider what Acts 10.43 says about remission. To him gave all the prophets witness. They all witnessed to Jesus. That through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive what? Remission of sins. Now, those two passages are critical. There's the balance. Not everybody will be saved, but whosoever will may come. For what purpose? To have your sins forgiven. The blood of Jesus. Is forgiveness of sin through the Roman church? Yes or no? No. 
And by the way, it's not through this church either. But let me give you another quote from Calvin. But as it is now our purpose to discourse to the visible church, let us learn from her single title of Mother, capital M, how useful, nay, how necessary the knowledge of her is, since there is no other means of entering into life unless she conceive us in her womb and give us birth, unless she nourish us at her breasts, and in short, keep us under her charge in government until, divested of mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Moreover, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for as Isaiah and Joel testify. And he gives passages. Hence, the abandonment of the church is always fatal. Who said that? Calvin said that. After his conversion. Wow. Okay. Now he quotes Isaiah and Joel. Well, he, he alludes to Isaiah and Joel. Question, did Isaiah and Joel teach anything about the church? <laughs> no. Did they teach that through, whether it's Israel or whether it's the church, that that's how you're saved? Did they teach that? Well, you may not be sure, but the answer is no. Because the scripture agrees, right? Agrees about salvation. So how could Calvin arrive there that Old Testament prophets were teaching that the Roman church is salvation? Ah, now we get to that whole matter of interpretation. If you can allegorize and your humor, hermeneutic is not right, you can pretty much make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. But Calvin's Roman Catholic views go even deeper than simply his family background. Calvin immersed himself in the writings of Augustine to the point that he would declare, quote, Augustine is so holy with me that if I wished to write a confession of my faith, I could do so with all fullness and satisfaction to myself out of his writings. End quote. So if I wanted to state what I believed, I could just tell you all that by quoting Augustine. I wish I had time to go back through the history of Augustine. But historians will tell us Augustine was really the father of the Roman church. It was his writings, it was his teachings, his thinking that influenced what became the Roman church right on up to the Reformation. Well, frankly, uh, what he taught is still being believed today in the Roman church. Now again, Augustine was used of the Lord in the 4th century. Do I believe that he was saved? Yes. How do I know that? I've read his salvation testimony. I think I've shared with you that salvation testimony is 80 pages long. 
Say, Pastor, why did you read that? I was bored. No. I'll just be honest. It was an assignment, okay? But it was fascinating how God worked in this man's heart. The problem is he came to Christ through faith alone, but already at that point he had in his mind through church leaders that he was reading that it's okay to interpret the Bible these various ways. And even by his time, church tradition held as much weight and sway as the actual truth of Scripture. So, I believe he was saved. But his teaching contradicted in many ways Scripture perhaps as a result of the church's union with the Holy Roman Empire under Constantine. And so let me give you some examples of Augustine's doctrine that Calvin embraced. First of all, regarding the free will of man, I hope you can read this. Here's what he said, Augustine now. Even as he, or God, has appointed them to be regenerated, whom he predestinated to everlasting life as the most merciful bestower of grace, whilst, or while, to those whom he has predestinated to eternal death, he is also the most righteous awarder of punishment. Now this will be a consistent theme. God created some people because he simply predestinated them to go to hell. And he's just in doing that. He's God. What did Calvin think? Well, he followed this teachings, and he's probably best known for his views on predestination and election. And notice, as I read his quote, how intellectualism and poor hermeneutics affected his views on free will. Here's what he said. This is Calvin now, who is influenced by Augustine. The great God, whose pleasure it is to inflict punishment on fools and transgressors. Though he is not pleased to bestow his spirit upon them, of this no other cause can be, here's a key word, adduced. This is logical. Than, and here's a word that he used, that he got from Rome, reprobation. If you have a Catholic background, you've heard that term. What is reprobation? It literally means predestined to damnation. So he says it can be adduced that reprobation, which is hidden in the secret counsel of God, Let me go on. Here are the words of Augustine most admirably apply. When other vessels are made unto dishonor, it must be imputed not to injustice, but to judgment. All right? So God in his perfect judgment makes some vessels so that he can condemn them. Where does that idea come from? Is there any scripture for that? I want you to take your Bibles, please, and would you go with me to Romans 
chapter 9. I'm going to do something that I hope will be instructive for you. I'm going to remind you that Romans 9 and 10 have as their context God choosing, not the church, but God choosing Israel. So that's the context, but obviously Paul is writing the book of Romans not to Israel. He references them, but he's writing that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, these chapters to the church. So Romans chapter 9. Let's go back to verse 20, and then we'll get to verse 22. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Now, Paul is responding to the fact that God chose Jacob over Esau. And Israel would say, well, was that fair? By the way, we know that he had made that choice even before those two were born. So is that fair? Well, the response, the biblical response is, as a man, you don't even have the right to ask that question because he is God. All right? 21, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make a vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? So who's Calvin quoting? The Apostle Paul. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Aha, Calvin was right. Okay, wait a minute. Again, the context is Israel. All right. But what if God willing to show wrath. In other words, he wants all of us to be convinced he is going to judge sin. He's done it for all of time. He's unchanging. To make his power known, endured with much what? Oh, Calvin skipped that part. Is God long-suffering and merciful? Yeah, he is. Can I give you a modern example? There's war in Israel right now. Somebody astutely reminded me, we we're just talking about this. Okay, the Palestinians are not Arabs. The Arab world doesn't want the Palestinians. Okay? Egypt doesn't want them. That's why they've kept that border crossing closed. I talked to an Egyptian who knows that situation. So who are the Palestinians? Well, they, over time, all different groups, but primarily, and you can even look at where they live, as part of that group, these are leftover Canaanites that were never destroyed. Now, what if Israel had obeyed God? You say, okay, well, now we're getting into that where, where was God really just? I mean, didn't Hamas just kill women and children? 
And I, I know this gets uncomfortable, but what did God tell Israel to do when they entered Canaan? Okay. Here's what you have to remember, though. For 400 years, the patriarchs, 400 years before, the patriarchs had lived among those people. They had the testimony of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, you read about a Philistine king named Abimelech, and he is influenced by Abraham's God. And so with that influence for 400 years, by the way, there was a king of Salem, a king in Jerusalem whose name was, but you know what? Melchizedek. Just like the Most High, I believe Melchizedek was a Christophany. A physical early appearance of Christ. Well, pastor, how can you say that? Because when Abraham came back, from defeating the kings that had defeated Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham worshipped Melchizedek and gave him tithes of all. All right. So they had a witness, and the scripture tells us for 400 years, the cup of God's wrath filled up. And so when God said to Israel, now go in and destroy they had a witness and they had rejected it. So let me ask you the question again. Does God endure with much long suffering? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now, as we read on, verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even as whom he hath called not of the Jews only. Now here's the shift in the text. But also to who? The Gentiles. And oh, by the way, as he saith also in O.C. Who's O.C.? Thank you. Hosea. Ah, the prophets were testifying of coming salvation. Now again, I'd like to develop this passage more, but regarding the free will of man, all right, so is the Lord just looking to destroy lives? Not at all. Note God's long-suffering, Romans 9.22, and that the, the context is Israel. All right, God's gracious calling then to the Gentiles, verse 24. Now, how does God view the wayward and the lost? Let's look at these passages. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the what? Oh, wait a minute. I, I thought he just made some vessels so he could destroy them. It's not what he said. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? You all know 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. 
Well, what does that say? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Okay, there are those who would have you believe, well, yeah, God said that, but he really didn't mean it because of predestination and foreknowledge. Stop. He's not slack. As some men count slackness, even theologians, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should, but that the elect should, no, no, that all should come to repentance. And so regarding the free will of man, that's a problem. Now, regarding the use of physical force in the church, quoting Augustine now, why therefore should not the church use force in compelling her lost sons to return? The Lord himself said, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, Luke 14, 23. How many of you knew when, when the Lord, when the master sent out his servants to go into the highways and hedges and to compel them to come in, they took whips and weapons and they beat those people trying to convince them, you need to come back to church. Oh, I didn't get any takers on that. That's not what Luke 14 is teaching. Anywhere you can find people, tell them to come back to church. No, tell them to come to a feast. I want them to know me. Well, what kind of a hermeneutic leads you to that conclusion? Well, he's not done. Wherefore is the power which the church has received through the religious character and faith of kings? Well, Augustine, it looks like you're looking at the Holy Roman Empire and not at your Bible. Because nowhere has God given government authority, authority over the church. Which is why Peter could stand in front of government authority and say we need to obey God rather than man. Augustine will go on. The kings are the instrument by which those who are found in the highways and hedges. <laughs> so what are the highways and hedges? I bet you didn't know this, but you're going to find out. Those are the heresies and the schisms. So they're caught in those highways, hedges of of wrong, erroneous thought, and you got to beat them out of the highways and hedges and get them back to church. Is that what the Lord was teaching? According to Augustine. And so are compelled to come in and let them not find fault with being compelled. In other words, if you disagree with this, you don't understand the Bible. The seeds of the Spanish Inquisition where Rome did all kinds of awful things, the Roman church, to get people to recant. Sometimes trying to get them recant because they believed what the Bible said. Where did that come from? That we can put you on a rack and make you taller? Where'd that come from? Augustine. But by that time now, it was the doctrine of the church. 
So regarding the use of physical force. And then regarding the kingdom. And we're going to have to stop with this. I know my time's up. Regarding the kingdom, one author said this, William Grady said, the deluded Augustine went so far as to announce through his book, The City of God, that Rome had been privileged to usher in the millennial kingdom. I mean, after all, the church controls the known world. The millennium is here. No, it's not. By the way, Romans 18 teaches us that God destroys, I believe God destroys the Roman church before he sets up his millennium. What is, what is the great whore that, that uh, combined religion and paganism and economy all over the world? I mean, she slept with kings. She's, she's influenced governments. Augustine, you could have had no idea how rotten and awful that was going to be. So even Romans 18 would strongly disagree with his assessment of the day that he lived in. There's little doubt that Augustine's use of allegory in scripture, interpret, of scripture interpretation, his wrong eschatology influenced Calvin. Now combine this with the fact that John Calvin was still new in the faith when he wrote his institutes and the possibility of doctrinal error was great. So let me close with this thought tonight. I've been asked, Pastor, are you a Calvinist? My answer is a strong no. But let, let me tell you why. I'm not even referring to doctrine. I refuse to be to have my theology identified by any reformer who was new in the faith, who was the disciple of somebody like Augustine. I refuse to even use his name to define what I believe when it comes to this precious truth of God's word. And I hope you'll understand that now by the simple things that we've looked at tonight that are profoundly wrong and against the scripture. Next time we're together, we're going to go on to some Baptist issues that we have. You know, as Baptists, we believe the Baptist distinctives. And how do those distinctives, those truths from God's word that we hold so dear, how do they line up with some of the things we've already seen and some other things that Calvin taught? And so... If what we've looked at is some of the foundation of covenant reform theology, without being overly simplistic, I just have to say I'm not interested. I believe that system of interpretation can really lead to problems, and it has. But now you know some of the important background of why folks are where they're at today how they can believe correctly in so many areas of Scripture, but in other areas, it just seems like there, there are major blind spots. And it's historical. And it goes back to some of their favorite church 
history people. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for the time in your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, continue to help us to learn. Lord, your word is a light to our pathway. It's also great protection from wandering off into other paths that can hurt our relationship with you, our effectiveness for you. Please keep us safe as we head home now tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.